You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Sarah. And hey, it's Chelsea. And today we're going to talk about Penhurst. Now, Penhurst is somewhere where I grew up. I know Grace's also has been around that area too. I grew up probably not even five minutes from there. And I currently still live, I think I live even closer now. But it was originally known as Eastern Pennsylvania Institution for the Feeble-Minded and Epileptic. It is located in Spring City, PA, Chester County. In January 23rd, 1903, the PA legislator authorized the construction of the institution. It was a second state-operated facility in PA. The Polk Center, which is in Polk, PA, which I actually don't even know where that is. I've never heard of it before. Neither do I. Yeah, and I I was rushing doing this case, as Sarah (laughs) will tell you. So I didn't, did not find out where that actually was, but it's somewhere in PA. I wonder if it's like on the other side of the state, like if it's on the Western side of the state. Yeah, that's, it's on the Western side. So it looks like it's pretty much smack dead between Pittsburgh and Erie, not too far from Youngstown, Ohio. Really? There was not a lot of places for people with intellectual or medical disabilities and the Polk Center was the first one and it was only for people with intellectual disabilities in PA. And now when it was decided that there was a need for a second facility, the commission wanted to find a large piece of land that was workable and could be able to house no more than 500 patients. I feel like that number is going to go well above 500. Oh yeah. Especially because it's like Pennsylvania. I didn't even look up to see like (laughs) what the um, population was, but I mean, yeah. Pennsylvania is a very large state. I mean, yeah, it surprises me. I have a friend that lives all the way in Western PA and I looked up how long it was like over six hours. I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. That's ridiculous. Yeah. It's crazy. Like we're in central PA. I mean, we're just outside of Harrisburg and it's a three and a half or four hour drive for us to go to Pittsburgh. Crazy. It's, it's crazy. It's a huge state. It is. I guess I don't think about that because, like, we're on the Eastern and I'm near Philly and it takes not more than an hour to get to other states. So for me, yeah, I guess, because I'm never going the, I'm not going the other way. I'm not going to, like, Ohio and Virginia, so. Well, and even to go, like, my husband is a truck driver and for him to get, he only is away overnight. And for him to get a run that he can make it out and back in 10 to 14 hours He can run into almost any state, but they're all north, south, or east. Like, it's rare that they ever go out towards um, Pittsburgh or Ohio or West Virginia. Or if they do, it's like pedal to the metal. They got to get there and get back before they run out of time. But like he runs into New York and New Jersey and Virginia all the time. So it's just, it's weird. Yeah. So as you're right, unfortunately, that um, that number was blown out of the water very early on. Now, they wanted the institution to be broken up into two groups, one for the educational department and one for the custodial or asylum department. And the construction phase took roughly five years. And the first patient received November 23rd, 1908. Quick question. Yep. 
So when they're saying institution for the feeble-minded and epileptic, are they trying to be gentle by saying feeble-minded and it's essentially what was an intellectual disability? Or is it more on the medical side of um, like mental illness rather than mental disability? Or I don't, I feel like an idiot. I don't know what that means. So when I was reading about it and I didn't actually put it in, so I guess it's good that you asked, they, um, early on, uh, I guess the board of trustees were getting like tons of complaints from the staff saying like they should not be grouped together and epileptic and then feeble minded because one needed severe medical attention and the other ones didn't. And it was really hard putting them together. And even though it was brought up, they never changed it. And you'll see uh, over time the name of those two. It didn't even matter. They were just taking basically in the rejects of society, okay. which is really, really sad. But in the beginning, it was supposed to be intellectual disabilities. Okay. That's what I figured, but I wasn't. Like not like, not like crazy mental, that kind of stuff. Um, right. But, but they ended up getting those types of people um, over time. Okay. Now, th- at the time, there were like non-existent programs, facilities, or resources for families with special and medical needs. Pennhurst started to fill up at an advance rate, like I told you about. The facility was also facing a ton of pressure to take in other undesirable people in the community, such as immigrants, orphans, criminals, etc. So, like, mentally challenged people. Not mentally challenged. Yes, mentally challenged, what I'm talking about. I don't want to put criminals in with orphans. I don't really want to put criminals in with anyone. Yeah. No. I mean, I having immigrants and orphans together is fine. Let them, you know, let there be a community of people that are typically ostracized, but maybe criminals not with the parentless children. And I tried to find like criminals in like what way? Are we talking murderers? Are we talking like right. petty thief? I couldn't find like the distinction of like which ones got let in and which ones didn't. It just said criminals. I would hope it's more along the lines of like petty thievery. Um but I also know like sexual assault was not taken seriously then. So for That's all true. we know it could be assailants in yeah. that way that are again, I don't want them in with orphans or anybody, but yeah no, that seems like an interesting crew of people well someone else had also said and i didn't want to put it in because it sounds so awful but basically it was like a steril sterilization program they were basically taking these people from society and in their heads they thought that they would be passing down these traits either of uh medical disabilities intellectual disabilities right. um all that stuff even like criminals i guess they thought that it would pass through i mean there was not it's yeah. different then than it is today obviously yeah um so basically they just anything that they didn't want to see in the community they brought there so hopefully they could like nip it in the bud trying to i guess create like an elite society in pa yeah (laughs) but um so obviously the facility reached capacity pretty fast a quote from a former special assistant to Penhurst superintendent said, Penhurst was a mistake from day one, but it was a mistake made by all of us following the dictates of the best minds of its time. The campus wasn't fully completed, though, until 1921 when the hospital opened, which kind of blows my mind because, like, it's for epileptics. And how is the hospital not open before the first patient is in? Right. I was, like, really confused about that. Like, I guess maybe they had, like, medics on floor, maybe, like, a medical kit. 
but like oh yeah but not a full blown no, hospital not at all um, interesting so that was confusing this concluded the original quote unquote campus development yet the buildings of the buildings didn't stop there in 1930 two female colonies were completed on the upper campus and in may of 1930 the board of trustees had an annual report that said that these new buildings which only housed 300 new patients would only briefly relieve the overcrowding conditions and at that time there were 900 applications on file to like go through to admit and new applications were coming in at an alarming rate of 200 50 per year. Wow. And I I know you brought this up during the Harrisburg State Hospital episode, but do you know um like what the application and acceptance process was? Was it just if you qualified and were in the state kind of like Harrisburg State Hospital was or were they more selective with I don't who they were able to bring in. I don't think they were selective because they were taking all these people that definitely didn't qualify under That's like true. their name. And I also, there was like caseworkers that were like pushing people in like with the state okay. as well. So I don't even think everyone was even getting applications. Um, okay. And I don't think they were turning anyone away because they were the only place. And as, as we will talk about it right. later on, you will see how bad the overcrowding was. And so now from here, I'm just uh, listing a lot of stuff about, um, as we go forward, about um, rights for these people and going over how, like, the decline happened and everything. So just preparing you. So in 1949, the PA ARC was founded and it is the largest advocacy organization in the U.S. for citizens with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families. Now, I want to say I've dealt with the ARC. Uh, I've known as the ARC Alliance. I don't know if it's like different per like county or whatever. I think so. Yeah. But basically, this is like the same thing. And their mission is to include children and adults with needs in the community. And so Landon was born a micropemie. He was like a pound and seven ounces. And so there's like tons of stuff since he was born under two ounces, he automatically qualified for like social security. He automatically qualified for the arc. So the day when we finally were able to bring him home, we had services the same day. And it's not just your typical services like the PTOT speech. And Mm -hmm. since he wasn't in school, he got, um, an instructional type, like, early intervention stuff yes it's early intervention basically it's like zero to three for the arc and Mm -hmm. um then early intervention is three to five and then you hit public school blah 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 but we also got um a a caseworker and at first i was like terrified i'm like why do we have a caseworker like what's this about she was the best she knew about all the resources in the county to make sure that we were getting him integrated into the community as best as we could um, and we struggled the first couple of years cause he had like really heavy medical needs and was in the hospital all the time, mm-hmm. but she helped us. She always had the applications. She had like the contacts, she knew other families. So it was like the best resource ever. So that's awesome. Yeah. It was phenomenal. So with the shift in the attitude towards these members of society with, um, the development of ARC, uh, the population of Pennhurst was pushing 3,500 wow. and yeah. So they were double the capacity that they could hold. Um, and 
this forced new state schools to open. Uh, in 1955, there were two former tuberculosis sanatoriums located in Whitehaven and Hamburg, and they were originally built to house people with like tuberculosis. But uh, after like that was done, uh, they uh, they had these buildings, and there was a huge need for them to um, have more state schools. So hundreds of patients were transferred from Pennhurst. And then in 1966, the MHMR Act and the federal Medicare program were initiated. And the Mental Health and Mental Retardation Act authorized services in the community settings and established a network of county-managed base service units that served as gateways to the service system. And the Medicare program was that was founded had the provision that people with mental retardation were eligible for federal reimbursement of a portion of the operating costs. So, like, as time goes on, these people that are housed in this facility are getting more rights. But the problem yeah. is a lot of these people were literally placed there and forgotten. Families didn't care. They didn't want to deal with it. Uh, and there were, there was a very small percentage of families that would see it and automatically pull their kids out. But it's a lot of work. I'm not going to lie. Wow. I have Landon and I, I wish um, Amanda would have been on because she has a son with special needs as well. It is not yeah. easy. It is not for the faint of heart. Um, and without having like community support, I don't know how I would have done it. And like, and it's not even just like needing help. It's being able to get resources for myself to yeah. be able to handle him. And I know that sounds terrible, but it's honest. And, um, and it, it kind of sounds terrible to you. Like when I hear you say that, it doesn't sound terrible to me. And I know Amanda says the same things, but honestly, I have so many parents just as a teacher I have so many parents that say, like, I feel like a horrible person because I can't handle this. Can you help me find whatever? And while obviously I don't have a child and therefore don't have a child with any sort of needs, I can't imagine the stress it puts on the parents. But I've definitely seen that from the education standpoint. And it's it's a lot. It is a lot. lot. And I mean, between me and Amanda, our kids vary completely differently. And it's, it's strange. It's not strange. It's, um, I believe everyone is on the um, spectrum at some varying degree of it. Like what is normal? hundred percent agree. Um, yeah. And I don't want to say I struggle with it. I just don't understand it. I've never had to understand it. Um, and so I'm not the best. And for me to have to look for resources, it's like me and my job, like, yeah. Uh, if I don't know how to do something in cat, I have to go figure it out or ask somebody who knows. And my family would give me problems. Like you shouldn't have to ask for help to deal with your own kid. I'm like, well, my kid is, and it made me feel terrible. I'm like, maybe I'm just yeah. a terrible mom. I was really young as well. And, um, but it's taken me a long time to realize that, um, I'm doing the best I can. And that's what yeah. really actually matters. Um, but some families just didn't want to do it. It's a lot of work. Um, yeah. She texts me. My book's there. God damn it. Um, anyway, so, <laughs> so with these, um, rights coming in, a lot of the people that were there weren't getting, um, their rights. Penhurst wasn't caring and basically they were just left there. Um, and as we'll see, you'll see what happens to them once they hit 18 and their families don't come for them, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Now in 1968, there was a huge documentary that came out that was like super controversial that raised a lot of hell. It was called Suffer the Little Children and it was a five part series. It was released from by CBS 
from Bill Baldini. He had gotten a tip, I'm guessing, from either one, a disgruntled parent, or two, um, a worker who Mm. wanted to get um, this issue out in the public. And the problem about it is, is the first time that it was exposed to the general public, like a lot of the staff had been fighting for years, like for investigations to happen, for things to change, but that would cost money and the school was not getting the funding and it's basically free to go there uh, until that one, um, until the Medicare came out, like they covered a portion of it. I couldn't figure out how much they were getting, but honestly, like that many people and they had, it was only certain people that had certain diagnoses. So it didn't cover everyone. Um, but when the public found out, um, what was behind those walls, there's like a huge outcry. Bill Baldini had said that his crew was constantly getting sick while trying to record. I watched a little bit of one. It's awful. You're basically, um, it showed patients being chained to cribs, sitting in their own filth, extreme overcrowding and being neglected in the first episode within the first minute he powerfully said we ship them 25 miles out of town to a state-operated hospital while we forget them and they decay from neglect which is super sad um and as i said there's a huge uprising from the public they put massive pressure for investigations to happen on how the situation could be this grim and i thought it was pretty interesting i um was looking on like the Penhurst Memorial site. And I found that, uh, Bill Baldini who ran that special, mm-hmm. he's currently on the Penhurst Memorial and preservation, uh, Alliance advisory board. Huh. So even though he's like way retired from reporting and stuff like that, he yeah. still, he still is, um, advocating. And I think even during his career, like he really followed the case and tried to help as much as he could. That's awesome. It is. And apparently, like, he was the longest running reporter in, like, Philadelphia time or something like that. And he's got, like, a ton of, like, awards and stuff. And just, I guess, a really good reporter. <laughs> I honestly That's never awesome. heard of him before. <laughs> I don't um, think I have either. But, I mean, that was obviously before our time. I'm so. <laughs> <laughs> in 1971, the case. Park first Commonwealth of PA is filed in federal district court and it seeks access to public education for all children. This law ended up being passed in 1974 and in 1973 Soder versus Brennan's case ended the peonage, which I've never heard of, but apparently it's a practice of using the unpaid labor of residents to operate the facility. Now this was a huge issue for Penhurst because a lot of the patients would have responsibilities and made them, and it almost made them feel proud and accomplished compared to their counterparts, which were deteriorating in their cribs and cages. And there was almost like a hierarchy of like patients. You had the patients that literally couldn't do anything for themselves. Okay. And then you had patients that had some type of understanding and they'd have like cleaning chores or helping other patients to the bathroom. And then you had ones that would like administer punishment or like administer medication Okay, see, that's where it goes downhill. Yeah. And the problem was that it was so short-staffed. And some, I've read that the only humanity found in that place was from workers who put in extra hours, who would bring, like, food, who would make things for the um, 
patients and stuff like that, but it it didn't matter. It was still awful at the place. Wow. And the big thing that ended up really closing Penhurst was in 1974, Halderman v. Penhurst was filed. Excerpts from the fact section demonstrate how horrific the conditions were, and I'm just going to go over a couple um, because it's just chilling. On the weekends and nights, there were no psychologists on duty, which means if there was an emotional crisis, a patient would have to wait. There was like nothing for them. Like not even an on-call person that was off campus and could come in. Just nothing. Yep, nothing. Mm. Wow. Restraints were used as control measures in lieu of adequate staffing. Restraints were either physical or chemical. Ooh, no. Yep. Physical restraints were seclusion rooms binding the patient's hands and feet, or even binding them to a chair or bed. The seclusion rooms were used for the violent patients and they could be left in there with no contact for days. Wow. And I didn't, I didn't, that's prison. In, but what was that? That's prison. Yeah, basically. Like that's solitary confinement in prison. Well, one of the plaintiffs in this, um, action lawsuit action, uh, she, was having issues, anger issues, behavioral issues, and so bad that she actually blinded herself. And they had secluded her, and in August, she was um, bound for almost the entire month, the amount of hours. And then she finally got OT, and her behaviors actually stopped. And this was, like, when it was getting closer to realizing, like, these patients can be rehabilitated. Yeah. Um, But she was bound for, like... 600 hours at a time. It was just really sad. Wow. Really, really sad. Wow. And um, the seclusion rooms were used for the violent patients, and they could be left in there with no contact for days. The chemical restraints were usually psychotropic drugs, such as tranquilizing drugs. They were used for control, not treatment, because, again, staffing issues. Right. And the rate of the drug use on some of the units was extremely high. One of the other plaintiffs in this case he, um, his mother was like, Hey, like when I come to visit my kid, he can't even stand up. Like he doesn't have, like Mm. like, he can stand up and it, they were giving him drugs for an epileptic and he wasn't epileptic. Yikes. Yeah. So then they changed it to another type of drug, which I can't remember off the top of my head. And obviously when he got out, he, he got moved into like a community home, which we'll go over later on. And he was able to fully be able to do everything without being on medication. It was just the proper therapies. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes people don't realize how much medication for an ailment that you don't have can hurt you. Oh, yes. And I think like one of the the best examples is uh, like meth type drugs because obviously if you're going out and getting crystal meth and you know you you know someone or see someone addicted to meth you can see the toll it takes on their body and their skin and their everything um but small doses of it for people that have you know like ADHD it it focuses them or even just ADHD medication like if someone that doesn't have ADHD takes it you know like it's speed yeah. But if you have ADHD and you take that medication, it literally just makes you function like normally. I don't like the worst of use of the word normal, but yeah, like it I makes it. you function. And I think people sometimes think, oh, big whoop if they gave him epilepsy drugs when he didn't really need them. Um, yeah, 
that affects your nerves. That's not well. The big thing, thing. the big thing for me is like talking about like that kind of stuff, and it's something that I'm struggling with in my son now because everyone's like, "Give him medication," and I'm like, "Fuck you all." But um, yeah. When I was younger, my mom uh, took me to like, quote unquote, a friend who claimed that she was like a therapist and she was giving my mom sample drugs of like Zoloft. And my mom, like every time I'd be bad, she'd like give me a Zoloft. So some days I was taking nine and I really, really struggled. And um, Zoloft is an antidepressant, but in studies it's found like if you're not depressed, it can make you depressed. It can yeah. make you violent um, and tons of other stuff. And my grandmother, when they had taken me in, they stopped me cold turkey. It was the worst because I was completely addicted um, at the age of 12. Wow. <laughs> and my grandmother, when she lost her mom, she was obviously, she was depressed. She went on Zoloft. Her doctor put on Zoloft because it is an antidepressant. And right. her mood swings and her violent tendency, she had to get off it. And she was taking half a pill. I mean, yeah. the side effects are crazy. And I'm, like I said, I'm part of a special needs Facebook group um, for parents. And apparently there's like this new technique where you can test your kids versus certain drugs to see if they would be compatible. It costs a lot of money. Um, yeah. Something we are thinking about. I can't afford it. Even if I wanted to yeah. thousands, but, um, yeah. apparently it like, instead of like playing that Guinea pig part, you know, of like finding out what right. medication will work, some families swear by it. So yeah. I don't know. It's crazy. Anyway, um, <laughs> done that tangent. Um, the environment at Penhurst was super hazardous, not only to the residents, but the staff as well. Uh, there's feces and urine all over the ward floors. The living areas didn't meet minimal professional standards for cleanliness. There was zero privacy for the residents. There weren't adequate activity areas or program areas because they were all converted into housing. Even some of their like bath, um, toileting areas, they had gotten converted to housing as well. <laughs> yeah. The environment wasn't good for learning new skills either. It was so poor that it contributed to residents losing skills that they had already had before entering the facility. For example, um, there was a toileting program that they provided. Um, but one who would successfully complete the program may not be able to practice these newly learned skills, which would lead to losing that skill. It could be because they didn't have staffing to take somebody who might not be able to transport themselves. Right. If they are chained to their bed, if they're in a seclusion room and basically it's like any skill, if you don't do it, you, it's potential of like losing it. Right. Especially for people that struggle with this stuff. So Right. It was a problem. And now, wow. yeah. And while we're on the subject of the toilets, the areas did not have t towels, soap, or toilet paper, and they were filthy in a state of disrepair. Ugh. Yeah. Pretty gross. No thanks. And in the uh, documentary, Suffer the Children, you can just see the amount of flies, like, clinging to the patients, dirty patients. You can see, like, fly traps hanging literally everywhere, covered. Like, it's almost Ugh. like you could, like, smell it through the screen. It was just kind of awful and just so dehumanizing. So, it, it was just kind of gross, which is uh, sad. Yeah. 
And also, I did read it somewhere. I've only I only read it in one article, but they didn't have anyone in there to clean on the weekends or at nights. So it was like only during the day. Ugh. So you can only imagine how gross. I mean, you think Friday night till Monday morning, there's going to be a lot of gunk that builds up. Yeah, no thanks. Yeah. And with that many people, I'm just like, seriously? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And the noise was so loud at any given time, many residents couldn't even hear each other, so they'd stop talking altogether. Um, and the only thing I can think about that is because, like, I feel like someone might say, like, if it's so loud and they stop talking, why is it still loud? My son self-stims, and when he stims, mm-hmm. he does not use use words. <laughs> and, like, our... I guess I'm laughing. It's not really funny. But our neighbors, when we first moved into our place, um, we live in a borough, so we live close. And uh, they've called the cops uh, a couple times just for the fact that he he literally yells and and he um he taps a spoon on his hand and he's literally screaming at the top of his lungs after school, especially because that's like his decompression time. And I right. think it sounds like something's wrong. And he's just having the time of his life tapping out his frustrations. <laughs> <laughs> And freaks out everyone. Um, so that's the only thing I can think of. Like, if it's yeah. these types of people, it's probably people that are potentially scripting or just making noises. Um, so that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, that would make sense. And now we talked about, like, abuse and how you had mentioned criminals possibly, you know, not right. being the best. Um, but it really ran rampant in the facility and it wasn't just staff abusing the patients but patients abusing other patients some injuries were small like bruises whereas others resulted in death and honestly um we'll talk about reports of like injuries and stuff like that but um for the reports it's hard i feel like there were not as many reports as there should have been i feel like they only reported the ones where the families were involved and so many things kind of went under the wayside if that makes sense yeah so in 1977 alone there were reported 833 minor injuries and 25 major injuries i couldn't figure out uh, anywhere what major stands for but in my head it makes me think of death yeah or severe something like severe mutilation or severe injury like broken bones or something like that like well there was there was tons of that not considered major and we'll talk about that later but that wasn't considered major then i have no clue yeah uh apparently like there was a lot of biters in this facility Mm. which which i get because um i don't know landon went to a type of like uh iu daycare so Mm -hmm. many kids bit and that was like a sensory thing for them so um yeah uh, apparently a lot of earlobes were bitten off in this, uh, facility. Oh, earlobes okay. and fingers. Yep. I read a, a lot about that. Um, so I think that it's like death or like really severe, like maybe coma or something. Probably. Yeah. But rape was also an issue within the facility and it wasn't between patients. It was mostly between like staff and patients, like staff raping the yeah. patients. Right. Uh, in 1983, in another case, nine employees were uh, indicted on various physical abuse and assault charges. Well, good. Yeah. <laughs> Which was surprising. I can't believe there was only Agreed. just nine. But um, approximately 21. Hey, for 1983, I'll take nine. That's- yeah, that's true. That is yeah. true. Um, 
Approximately 21 out of the 45 living units would get locked to prevent residents from leaving. Um, and there would be no like staff in there. They'd lock it at night. So they, so they wouldn't leave. Jeez. And then individuals over 18 who had been voluntarily admitted to Pennhurst were theoretically free to leave once they hit 18. But if the resident wanted to leave, the facility could basically petition the court and have the individual committed if they couldn't find a place for them or if they felt they weren't ready to be in the community. And Um. apparently it happened a lot because there was nowhere for these people to really go. Right. Other than another state facility, but they wouldn't, they could just transfer. They wouldn't need to put them out. So, um, nine times out of 10, they would end up getting committed, which is sad. Yeah. So the original plaintiff, Terry Lee Halderman was admitted to Pennhurst in 1966 when she was 12 years old. During her 11 years at Pennhurst, she had lost several teeth, had a fractured jaw, fractured fingers, fractured toes, and numerous lacerations, cuts, scratches, and bites. Prior to Mm -hmm. arriving, she could say a handful of words, but at the time of the trial, she no longer spoke. As the case gained more traction, more families jumped on board to be voices for their loved ones who had suffered at Pennhurst, and they all had similar stories to Terry. I mean, all differing, you know, varying things, because they were in for different things. Um, Right. I guess different floors slash wards. Uh, had different, I guess, issues. Yeah. Now, parents of the Penhurst residents testified that they put their children in Penhurst as a last resort. If there had been community facilities or aid programs, they would never even consider sending their children there. Which I get. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. Um, now, this case got tried between April 1st, 1977 through June 1st, 1977, and Judge Raymond... Jay Broderick ruled in favor of the residents, declaring that forced institutionalization of persons with disabilities is unconstitutional. Final settlement agreement provides for the closure of Penhurst. There wasn't good planning on how to disperse the residents to the public. Some families didn't even come, and the majority of patients struggled acclimating to community living. That breaks my heart. Yeah. Like... Some families just didn't even come. Yeah. The only thing I could think of is, like, obviously this case was, like, huge, hugely publicized. Not right. Especially after the um the Suffer the Little Children thing came out. I can only think mm-hmm. parents, parents had the thought that they're worse than they were before they sent them there. Well, that's true. And it sucks. And um, a lot of them didn't go to other state schools. There were, um, as we talked about, like, community homes. Mm-hmm. Um, so very, very, very much smaller scale. And, um, they had kind of the things like we have today with therapy therapists that will come out to the community base to do community work together, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then, oh, thank you. Uh, families that did get their loved ones, they, there was a study set up called the Penhurst longitudinal study it followed 1156 people who had lived at penhurst uh the year that it closed extensive data was collected and the one question that basically everyone was trying to figure out was are these people better off than they were at penhurst uh the study concluded a couple of things moving people from institutions to community was one of the most successful social changes in the late 20th century 
As of 2021, fewer than 15,000 people live in public institutions, and 17 states don't even have a public institution. Pennhurst contributed powerfully to a great civil rights movement that very few people actually even know about. I guess they don't know about it unless they were affected, like, family-wise, you know? Right. Some say the terror and agony of the people who live there was not in vain, that it changed all of America and potentially the world and how we view our disabled community. <clears throat> Which I'm like, maybe not the whole entire world. Yeah, I think. And I mean, again, like you just said with the last point, a lot of people don't even know about it. I mean, I only know Penhurst as a Halloween attraction. I didn't know <laughs> any of this stuff. Um, I honestly thought that it was more of an insane asylum rather than like an epileptic hospital um so i think anyone that definitely knows the terror and agony that went on there would be changed by it but i think not very many people know about what actually happened i 100% agree with you losing my voice um my nephew hold on i'm gonna need water go for it <clears throat> maybe not okay i'm good i got something caught okay matt you talk about that my nephew i had him this weekend and he was like oh all my friends are going to penhurst he's a little bit of a scaredy cat so he's not going but he was talking about it and i was like i will never go to penhurst i mean now, since we're at the end, I'm going to talk about it anyway. But um, Penhurst was uh, converted into a haunted attraction. Mm-hmm. From from my understanding, um, I don't think he owns the entire campus. It is a very large campus. It's like 210 acres. Yeah. And the attraction is not that big. It's I think there's four attractions this year. Um, okay. I will I will not go. The um, uh, who bought it was his name's Richard Chuckajan. Chuck. Chakijian? Yes, that one. <laughs> yeah. You say it way so better. Richard Chakijian. Yes, so he owns it and he had said, give me one second, I have it listed. So he he's running it. It took him a couple of years to set up because I mean this uh facility was in like uh crazy uh disrepair, you know? Yeah. And he had to get like tons of grants for it as well. And I believe um that there's still a veteran center on the camp the campus is huge and there's a lot around it it's right outside of our borough yeah um and the campus actually like it had its own power plant it had its own cemetery because i had mentioned like the tuberculosis right outbreak they actually didn't have a cemetery until that and then they did have patients die and they're some of the only graves that actually have um names on it there's um There are, there's tons of unmarked graves around Penhurst. Um, but basically it was supposed to be a community where it was self-sufficient. They didn't have to like leave or anything. There's, it's a huge campus. We'll post pictures on it, but I know he doesn't own all of it, but, um, Richard had said, you know, um, that he isn't making fun of it, I guess. I don't know how to word it. Like it's not supposed to. Like, it's not mocking. It's just having fun with something. Basically. And he, and early on, he had made uh, the statement that his staff does not dress in like patient wear, which I say complete fucking bullshit because I, um, I know this girl that I went to high school with her and her parents 
both, well, every single year, except for COVID. I don't even know if it was running during COVID. They worked there as um, those types of people at Scary, you know? Mm-hmm. She'd post pictures every night, and that's what they're dressed as, as doctors, uh-huh. as crazy people in straight jackets, like with blood. And I was like, that lasted so long. It probably lasted long enough for him to, like, get started. And I was like, how yeah. shitty is that? Because this is not that long ago, honestly. And, um, this has been an attraction. I think I want to say it's the fifth year of him, of him doing that, of the uh, attraction actually being open. Yeah. I'm not sure. I know it's new ish. Like it hasn't been around for 20 years, but no, <laughs> no, no, no. It's been more than like two or three. Yeah. I definitely think it's about five years. Um, though <laughs> Richard also says that, there is like a museum part that you can go through before you get to the attractions. Um, so I guess that's like a way of um, placating some people, you know? Um, but it's, I think it's expensive. It brings a lot of people. As I said, it is um, extremely close to uh, the borough. So I live in a borough. It's like five minutes from me. So, I mean, that gives you an idea that it's not, you know, this open land like it once was. There's a lot around it. Having the attraction, it brings in so much traffic. And there are houses that are built around this facility. And there's still people in this community that were from Penhurst. Like, they basically stayed local if their families didn't come. Yeah. Um, and once they, like, integrated into society... And it was like a huge, huge thing when they first opened because it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be like this. A lot of people think that it should be lessons for the future, though. I think we are so far away from where that was. I would hope to God it never happens again. Um, But it does put a lot of, like, I, I guess like it brings money into our town because those tickets ain't cheap. Right. Holy shit. I, I do know that. Um, and I know that there's like an old, there's a type of industry building like a couple streets away where people can park and they bust them because the parking at Penhurst, I guess, I guess parking wasn't like a huge thing back then. I don't think, right. you know. but, um, it puts a lot of strains on like our, our, our roads. Cause we have like these small little local roads right. and just busing and you have these drunk people. Mm-hmm. They've like vandalize things and i did say i don't know if you caught it but this guy richard he does have like a couple rooms that's almost like a museum to penhurst oh but yeah i don't know what they enclose like i said i will never go i will never support it i'm not going to give my money to that right um but so there's that so that's the attraction now um there is um, I know that East, because I think we talked about it when we were talking about Lauren Jackson, the East Coventry Township, they bought some of the land from Penhurst. Like I said, it's a huge, huge right. parcel of land, 210 acres. And they wanted to make a recreational park there for, um, the people that live there. Um, and it has been like a couple of years in the making. There has been tons of conjecture people think that they don't want to build there because they started they started digging and then they immediately stopped they feel like they found unmarked graves mm. and we know how people in the public feel about unmarked right. graves it wasn't like 
didn't Canada recently found tons of unmarked graves? Indigenous we people. About that. Yeah. Yes. It does not go over well. Yeah, not no. At all. No. So there's like, they're like, why is it taking them so long to make this park for everyone? What do they find? Right. Um, and when Penhurst did close, I feel like anytime there's a murder, um, they're like, it must have been someone that was from Penhurst, which is terrible. Yeah. But Amanda's case with, what's that kid's name? He was a Boy Scout. I can't remember uh, his Terry name. Bowers. Terry Bowers. One of the theories was someone from Penhurst. Lauren right. Jackson, someone from Penhurst. Um, and it's just, it's a sad thing. Um, there's the veteran centers also there. I've been there. There's a farm behind there that I recently had to go survey equipment for. And it is just so creepy. I went there during the day and I was still like creep the fuck out. I mean, I've been, I've been there. I've been there so many times to Penhurst, not for the attraction, just to be clear. Um, like, um, when we had people come home from like overseas in the military, they, um, they'll do, I don't know why it's there. It's random. I guess they have national guard there to like protect the um, premise, but anyway, um, they have parades there to bring home people (laughs) in the military and stuff like that. So I've been there. I've been to the veteran center. Um, like I said, I've been to that farm and it's just creepy and it should just stay away. There's just so much hurt and terror i can't even imagine how many people died there i couldn't even find exact numbers honestly and it either went from people disappeared well disappeared how did they run away were they sent away were they murdered where are these people um and i was actually kind of surprised because um some some organization was going around and trying to like pinpoint which body was at each um little grave memorial oh wow and some of them yeah, and some of them actually do have death certificates, huh. but there's a lot that don't. And mm-hmm. some of them don't even know, was it a patient? Was it staff? Right. Um, Was it someone from the community? Like, it's just so much unknown about it. And there was, so a lot of people go there. Um, in high school, that was like the big thing who can break in and like spend time there. As I mentioned, there's like national guard there. They do, they were uh, patrolling, I guess, since it's a haunted attraction where people mostly broke into, like, I don't know how that works now, Yeah. but in high school, that was a thing to like break in, look around, take pictures, whatever. And, um, one year there was a video camera found and it's called the lost footage. Um, and basically people think that it was kind of like just college kids trying to recreate the Blair Witch Project. That's kind of what I was getting from that title vibe. Yeah. Yeah, basically. And then other people think that these two kids have been missing, but um, there's, you can like look at it on YouTube. Basically it's these two kids in Penhurst and then like it cuts to like different scenes, but then you don't see them or hear them. And, um, but you can clearly see their face in the first take. Like they, it's clear, like someone would have to know who they were and they were, yeah, they, um, they're not like black or I, they're like more white. So you would feel like people like would be more concerned, which sounds awful, but we go over that all the time. Right. Like how whiteness is anyway. But, um, 
if they were missing, they obviously have faces. Like no one could bring up their their names are never mentioned. So it's mostly just like I think a farce. Like yeah. I kind of watched it. Thought it was. I thought it was like the Blair Witch thing. But tons of people talk about it all the time. Like and I just don't know why. But um. So then there's that. But there's just so much unknown, and I feel like a lot of people didn't get reconnected with their families when the whole thing went down. Right. And it's just like a really sad sad thing yeah that's all we have for this episode of keystone cold cases podcast please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims only to law enforcement if you have any tips this episode was researched and hosted by chelsea brown find all of our sources social media connections and contact information at kccpod.com the music and production assistance from darren megan's join us again next week for another case to sleuth out